Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Come on in. You know where the drinks are. Just grab what suits you and settle into that shadow-soaked corner over there by the bookshelf. Okay? Well, I am sorry you missed it. We had friends over the other night, and as they came up the steps, one of them a writer chum, B.C. Bell, whom you've heard here before, picked up a small package that was lying there, and he handed it to me. Uh, mail, he said. Something from, and he took a look, H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, he said. Egad, I said. It had arrived, all unawares, my Blu-ray of The Whisperer in Darkness. It had been languishing out there without all day. There it was. I'd been waiting for it for weeks, months, really. Actually, years, if you count the time since I first heard they were doing this thing. To explain. I need not say that H.P. Lovecraft writes dense, introspective prose. In addition, he, he frequently hides the final, the ultimate horror from descriptive specificity and drenches the explanation of it all in madness, flight, and forgetfulness. 
Unfortunately, filmmakers have to show the audience something. Those things usually are both costly and never quite reach the level of the mind-draining horror that Lovecraft only hints at. Because man may only... Well, you know. He frequently allows his readers to dangle over horrifyingly terrible plot points as they threaten to skewer our hapless and now demented hero in whose growing apprehensions we've been living for the past 15,000 or so words. It's hard stuff to film. Which doesn't stop many generously budgeted films from trying and generally failing to bring Lovecraft to the screen in any recognizable way. Stuart Gordon gets close with Reanimator, but he slips over the edge into parody. John Carpenter gets a kind of hint at it with uh, The Thing. Well, fortunately, we fans have the aforementioned H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, or HPLHS as it's known around. The principal members of the group, Sean Brainy and the rest, apparently began their love of H.P. Lovecraft's craft in their adolescence and through what seems in old photos to be painstakingly propped and costumed Cthulhu role-playing games in high school and beyond. Thankfully, Sean and the others remained cultists into their adulthood. Now they do many things. Radio dramatizations, musicals, films. They sponsor podcasts. They sell props from their films at all. I cannot tell you how much they do, and they do it all pretty damn well. Anyway, they, they do lots of things. The company's motto, Ludo Fore Putavamus, says it all. I'll forego more discussion about them and the society and the society's wonderful toys, media offerings, and other products, because I hope you'll stop by their site. It's at http colon slash slash www.cthululives.org. That's C-T-H-U-L-H-U-L-I-V-E-S dot org. Generally, all you need to do is input HPLHS into Google, and there you'll be. Anyway, getting back to where I was. Whisperer in Darkness is their second feature-length film, the first being the rather wondrous Call of Cthulhu, filmed in living black and white, and except for a grand musical score, high-fidelity stereo silence. Call of Cthulhu was written in something like 1927, and sound was by then just a whisper and a toy in Hollywood. Whisper was written in, I think, 1933, and by then all the world was talking, including Dracula, Frankenstein, King Kong. I will try not to review the film here, as I'd like one of our family of writers, readers, and lovers of the dark to do that. I will say that Chris Bell, our wives, and I loved it. If you're a hardcore fan of Lovecraft, do not be put off by the fact that the filmmakers have actually added a third act to the film version of the story. After all, Lovecraft has his hero, Professor Wilmarth from Miskatonic U, catch a veiled glimpse of the ultimate horror and he takes flight before his sanity is drained forever. As mentioned, filmmakers have to fill things in, finish the story, as it were, and so if you feel cheated by this, well, too bad. Alas, and oh, ah, well, they finish the tale nicely. 
When ordering the disc, I debated first about getting a Blu-ray of the film because my one complaint about Call of Cthulhu was that the black-and-white image, trying to look very much like a 1920-something or another film, was really sharply lit, well-defined, and consequently lost some of the lockdown camera simplicity and soft focus of films of the 20s and 30s. Blu-ray, I thought, would bring that criticism into even sharper relief than... I thought, hell, I have a Blu-ray player, so why not? And there it was. And yes, at first the crispness and the more subtly graded image of contemporary cinematography irked me. But eventually, director Sean Branny's use of the camera, ably abetted by the superb lighting and camera work by DP Dave Robertson... Uh, Branny and Robertson really knew where to put their camera's eye throughout and how to move the camera... Anyway, their incredible choice of shots and the altogether creditable acting throughout won me over, and I just forgot about my concerns and enjoyed the film. Acting, by the way. Acting. Usually moderately bad to lousy in low-budget films, and this is a low-budget film, it is universally good throughout this. I'll single out the performance of just three people. Matt Foyer plays our central figure, the guy who, in most Lovecraftian outings, loses his sanity. Well, here he remains relatively sane and ends heroically. Foyer plays Professor Albert Wilmarth, whose expedition into darkest Vermont is the substance of the tale. Barry Lynch does an excellent turn as the cult-tormented farmer Henry Akeley, and Autumn Wendell gives a surprisingly layered and touching performance, says Hannah Masterson, an 11-year-old farm girl who watches her world disintegrate around her. Yes, Lovecraft scholars, she does not appear in the story as written. Okay, I said I wasn't going to review the film, and I'm not, even though I damn near have already. Go see it where and when you can. Sean Brainy, Dave Robertson, uh, and the producers of the film, Chris Slackey, Andrew Lehman, Sandy Peterson, they're making epic efforts to bring their film to theaters around the country. So keep your eyes peeled. And if you can't wait, and if it doesn't come to a theater near you, the DVDs and the Blu-rays are now available. I now want to try something a little different. I've been on about H.P. Lovecraft tonight, and I thought I'd read something by him. The whisper in darkness runs about 27,000 words, so we'll not do that. Not tonight, anyway. Sometime I will do The Color Out of Space. That's a manageable 10,000 or so words. But tonight, tonight, just to give us a whiff of Lovecraft, I'm going to read one of his shortest stories. It's almost a poem, in fact. It is called... Memory. In the valley of Nis, the accursed waning moon shines thinly, tearing a path for its light with feeble horns through the lethal foliage of great upas trees. And within the depths of the valley, where the light reaches not, move forms not meant to be beheld. 
Rank is the herbage on each slope where evil vines and creeping plants crawl amidst the stones of ruined palaces, twining tightly about broken columns and strange monoliths, and heaving up marble pavements laid by forgotten hands. And in trees that grow gigantic in crumbling courtyards leap little apes while in and out of deep treasure-vaults writhe poison serpents and scaly things without a name. Vast are the stones which sleep beneath the coverlets of dank moss, and mighty were the walls from which they fell. For all time did their builders erect them, and in sooth they yet serve nobly, for beneath them the grey toad makes his habitation." At the very bottom of the valley lies the river Than, whose waters are slimy and filled with weeds. From hidden springs it rises, and to subterranean grottoes it flows, so that the demon of the valley knows not why its waters are red, nor whither they are bound. The genie that haunts the moonbeam spake to the demon of the valley, saying, I am old and forget much. Tell me the deeds and aspect and name of them who built these things of stone. And the demon replied, I am memory, and am wise in lore of the past, but I, too, am old. These beings were like the waters of the river Than, not to be understood. Their deeds... I recall not, for they were but of the moment. Their aspect I recall dimly. It was like to that the little apes in the trees. Their name I recall clearly, for it rhymed with that of the river. These things of yesterday were called man. And so the genie flew back to the thin-horned moon, and the demon looked intently at a little ape in a tree that grew in a crumbling courtyard. That is memory, and it's about 350 words or so. I'll not say much about H.P. Lovecraft. I'll let you find out about him. He was born in Providence, Rhode Island, in August of 1890. He died in March of 1937. He was a devoted amateur and a phenomenal letter-writer who influenced almost everyone in the field of horror and weird tale-writing in his time and in all times that have come after him. There are a lot of contradictions about him. He was apparently a virulent anti-Semite, and all that is moderated by the fact that his wife, apparently quite loved by him, was a Jew who supported him for most of their lives together. So, look him up. We're now going to jump into a bit of fact by the ever-popular Mr. Andy Remick, who will serenade us again with a tale of horror, anarchy, and doom. Hello and welcome to another podcast session of Horror, Anarchy and Doom. My name is Andy Remick and I'm the author of 14 books published by Orbit Books, Angry Robot Books and Solaris Books. 
and of course, my own little digital publishing company, Anarchy Books. First, let me say, I finally, and finally, as in I wish I'd a damn sight more time to read these days, finished Stephen King's magnum opus, 112263. And what a totally fabulous book it is. Right up to the last page, it had me enthralled, and he brought all the plot strands together superbly. I highly, highly recommend this book, not just to fans of horror, but to fans of any good story. The moniker that King used to carry about being the master of horror used to make me cringe a little bit, but in this instance, he has definitely earned the right. It's completely fabulous. Anyway, moving on, I'm currently reading Simon Pegg's autobiography. I'm a big fan of Nick Frost and Simon Pegg, and they are surely the darlings of geek culture and Empire magazine, who seem to never stop banging on about them. Anyway, my own personal favourite is the horror rom-com Zom, Shaun of the Dead, which is surely one of the best horror films ever made. Yes, because it's British. Yes, because it has zombies, but mainly because of the subtly played comic acting. Peg is great in this film, as the eponymously haunted and hunted Sean, who is not only having girlfriend and stepfather issues, but finds himself embroiled in an apocalypse in London. Armed with the backbone of Britishness, the cricket bat, he decides to sidestep the zombie apocalypse in the only way he knows how, by seeking refuge in the Winchester, his local pub. Only things don't go to plan, and his best mate is bit by a zombie, which means it's time for another go on the PlayStation. Of course, this film is directed by Edgar Wright, who then went on to make the superb Hot Fuzz and the hmm, execrable Scott Pilgrim versus the world, or whatever it's called. And Peg went on to make Paul, and the less said about that weakly plotted pointlessness is the, uh, the better. Hopefully their next collaboration will reap a new high in both their careers. The point anyway, when I finally get to it, is that reading Peg's biography, I expected to dive straight into anecdotes on Shaun of the Dead, but instead Peg has decided to bore his readers to death for the first hundred or so pages by blathering on about his perfect childhood, with an occasional rant thrown in for good measure. Now I'm all for seeing where an artist has evolved from, but Peg's childhood was dull. Nowhere are we given an inkling on where Shaun of the Dead would emerge. Harsh, maybe, and it certainly got me drooling, blood and pus, in anticipation of the gory stuff to come. But strangely, the book has been unsatisfying so far. Now, my fledgling little publishing company, Anarchy Books, has released a slew of titles this Easter. But one I think you'd be most interested in, this being a horror podcast, is Dark Asylum by Matthew Cowden. Now, here's the blurb. All families have secrets. Some are just far darker than others. Pennsylvania, 1895. Evil and madness hide within the walls of the Gaskell's gothic country mansion, and some believe ghosts roam the halls to torture the living. Emily Radcliffe, the Gaskell's governess, has her own dark past, one she's been hiding from under the shelter of this sinister home. A bloodthirsty killer escapes from a nearby mental hospital, leaving a trail of carnage and cat-and-mouse games through the streets of Allegheny City, and giving the police the impression that the Gaskell family may be his eventual target. Mystery, madness and carnage gradually surround Emily as she becomes trapped in this dark world of secrets and sin. Dark Asylum is a tale of the late Edgar Gaskell, a man who is the key to unlocking the horrifying secrets of a tortured family and horrors beyond imagination. Only read Dark Asylum if you wish to suffer. And obviously by suffer, we mean enjoy some vintage Victorian slash American horror with new twists on Jack the Ripper, 
and not suffer because it might be a bad book or something. Anyway, you know what I mean. Okay, what else can I talk about? Okay, the last pod, I mentioned computer games and how it was my intention to play some survival horror titles like Left 4 Dead 2, Rage, and Deus Ex, Human Evolution, or is it Revolution? I can't really remember. Anyway, that went out the window mainly due to time constraints uh, and my busy workload, but also because Steam, the online delivery service uh, that allows you to play IDs Rage, decided it wasn't going to let me play it. It decided it was going to have a random hissy fit and lock me out of the game. Uh, forum searches gave some clues, but it really took me a week of faffing to get back in. And then I kind of lost my enthusiasm. Damn ID and Steam. You want true horror? Then, well, that was it. ID and Steam, true horror. Uh, finally, let me see. The latest issue of my free magazine, Ultimate Adventure Magazine, is now available at www.uamag.co.uk. Um, now, whilst I recognise it's an adventure magazine by nature, there is a horror column in there, which I think you could be interested in, and it's written by Michael Wilson, who runs the This Is Horror website. And this month he's looking at gore versus psychological horror, and I know which camp I'm in. Both, actually. Anyway, check out the website, or just type Andy Remick into Google. Uh, that's Remick, R-E-M-I-C. Finally, what am I reading now? Well, I'm just about to embark on Cell by Stephen King. So, wish me luck, Cenobites. Thank you, Andy. And to know more about him, take a look at his website. We have it on our website. Just click on the link below. We're going to jump into another little poem now, although this is somewhat different from any other poems we've had. Different because perhaps it's by one Martin Munt, whom you will remember from Chair and from his several reviews, or non-reviews, that he's done here. My Thumb, a poem by Martin Munt. I cut my thumb upon a saw. I cut my thumb and nothing more. I cut my thumb, I said aloud, and pale I grew because I knew I'd cut my thumb, but that was all. It bled some blood and then it stopped. It radiated pain, it swelled. It fussed some purple oily pus, but that was it. It was a cut and nothing more. Perhaps a nerve was slashed. Perhaps the bone was scored. I couldn't tell through all the gore. A simple cut and nothing more. Of that I certainly was sure. And then I said, Where is that thumb? The lesser part. The knuckle up. That part had fallen on the floor. A minor cut, a nick, a scrape, and positively nothing more. I found the upper part, the nail, beneath the sink behind a pail and took it from a rat that had begun to dine it's mine i said it's mine comestibles more fit for rats are commonplace on floors that thumb is mine and only mine how odd i thought my thumb was cut upon a saw has bled has hurt has rolled about the floor has near been gnawed and et by famished rat what next be carried off by bats i smiled i laughed i nearly swooned from loss of blood I found a thread and needle, sutured knuckle hard to bone, and wrapped all tight, all snug and tight. A doctor? No. 
I wrapped it tight. Some Bactine aspirin, the rest is wasted money, utter waste. Self-medication is the best. And then I smelled a nasty smell. A smell like pine, arrangements floral, a smell like earth to corpses smells. Indeed, a most unwelcome smell. I sniffed. The smell was everywhere I went to smell. The smell, of course, was me, my thumb. How bad, I thought, could this smell be as bad smells go? I had already cut my thumb, and now that thumb, that self-same thumb, decayed. How bad could bad luck be? A nasty smell, I thought. That's all. A passing smell and nothing more. A virus ate my flesh, I found, dissolving skin and bone and more. A virus ate my flesh and grew before my eyes and grew and gouged a nasty green and yellow sore, a green and yellow running sore in flesh, and then it ate some more. Where was it from? I didn't know. But surely, surely rat or floor was home to many viral spores. The nasty virus ate my flesh. The virus absolutely gorged, digested skin in layers, nerves, and even oily purple pus, digested suture, thread, and nail, and spread across my hand a green and yellow glove. I watched and thought, "'Twill eat my hand, but nothing more. "'My hand,' I said aloud, to no one in particular, "'will sate its hunger, satisfy its wants. "'My hand will be sufficient fare to fill a virus, however gaunt.' And what if I should lose a hand? There is, I thought, no real harm in, an empty wrist to end my arm in. How odd, I thought, how odd indeed. My thumb, which I had bravely saved from being eaten, and all this time, of course, the nasty virus still was eating, calmly feeding, feeding. How odd it is that I should save my second favorite thumb from saw and floor and being food for rats, and now it uses me for food. How painful the ingratitude! How sharp as viral tooth my thumb's ingratitude! My other thumb would never think to treat me so opposably. How odd indeed! The virus ate and ate some more. I only waited, almost bored. I was so patient, bored as paint, and so I fell asleep. How odd to fall asleep while being used as food by nasty viral spores! But sleep I did. And when I woke, my arm was not an arm at all. Instead, a sleeve of yellow, green, and running sores was where my arm had been. Oh my, I said aloud, I overslept, and now my arm is not my arm. And surely now, yes, surely now there's lots of harm in an empty arm to end my arm in. I'd had my fill of virus, thumb, and purple oily pus, of green and yellow running sores. Enough, I cried, and struck the table hard with fist, or would have struck, had fist just been where fist had been before. In short, I missed, but didn't care. I had a plan. I had a saw and practical experience at cutting body parts away. I flipped the switch and spun the saw. The circular teeth grew blurred and hummed. I put my shoulder to the wheel, and just like that, I gave the rat a green and yellow happy meal. How odd, I thought, a flood of blood exploding over saw and floor and me. How odd to try to save a thumb and lose an arm instead. How odd to saw an arm away, I thought, and looked for needle thread to close the hole I'd sawed. How odd! 
However will I fit the thread in needle's eye to close the hole I've sawed so wide? However will I medicate myself this time with missing arm? But just an arm and nothing more. No, nothing more. Well, we can't have Marty spreading body parts and fluid here in the nook, even if they are food for rats. We keep cats here. They're not for friendship's sake. Thank you, Marty. Uh, Marty is the author of the recent novel Reanimated Americans, and I recommend that heartily. Marty is an old friend, an old comrade in arms from the days of Twilight Tales. And uh, he does frequent little non-reviews here on Tales to Terrify. We'll have one of those soon again. He's also the author of Chair, which kicked off this series of shows. And our main fiction tonight is a nasty little tale by Christopher Fowler. Somebody else said it was a nasty little tale. I think it is, too. Christopher Fowler is a British crime, horror, thriller, and satire writer. He's written a Sherlock Holmes story for BBC Seven Radio called The Lady Downstairs. He is the author of the Bryant and May novels, in which two detectives from the fictional Peculiar Crimes Unit Solve Peculiar Crimes. Looking at his bibliography, beginning in about 1984, he seems to have written about a book a year, except in those years when he wrote several books. His book, Rune, is an update to a modern setting of M.R. James' story, Casting the Runes. It also features Bryant, May, and several characters from that series. His story, The Master Builder, was filmed as Through the Eyes of a Killer, and it starred Richard Dean Anderson, Marg Helgenberger, and Tippi Hedren. His tenth short story collection, Old Devil Moon, won the Edge Hill Audience Prize in 2008. Here is Christopher Fowler's The Eleventh Day, read by Kim Lakin-Smith. The First Day Mia Terrabin worked in the St. Petersburg International Archive, cataloguing documents pertaining to post-war Russian-American oil initiatives. She was 22 years old, a little too slender, pale and blonde, with ice-blue eyes, and translucence to her skin that gave her a haunted quality that men either found attractive or disturbing. Her colleagues joked that during the season of white nights, she all but disappeared in the dull glare of falling snow. For the past 80 years, the archive had been situated in a grand municipal building to the south of the city, on Moskovesky Prospect. But now it was being gradually transferred to a vast, impersonal data facility some 15 kilometres further out of town. Mia had worked in the gloomy maze of corridors 
for 19 months and was looking forward to being in an office that had sunlight and reliable heating. It meant she would no longer have to cross half a kilometre of icy marble to find a functioning toilet or arrive at the office to find the radiator pipes frozen solid. The archivists with whom she worked were mostly older, unsociable academics from Moscow who had chosen the job so that they could work uninterrupted by the demands of normal life. Here they could hide themselves away with their documents in an isolated building that protected them from the intrusions of the world. At 6.48pm, on the last Friday evening in September, Mia cleared her desk, packed her suitcase and locked her office. Masha and Andri, her two colleagues, had moved to the new building at the end of the previous week. And although they had not been great friends, she missed hearing someone else's conversation because there had been nobody left on the seventh floor except a couple of young men who were being employed to check the contents of document boxes and tape them up, ready for removal. She never took the elevator because it was supposed to be unreliable. But she decided to do so tonight because the lights were out on the staircase and because she was wearing heels and the marble steps were treacherous. Usually she had boots or trainers to change into. But this morning she'd overslept and did not have time to pack her bag with everything she needed. When bad things happen, who is to say where their roots lie? In the days to come... Mia found herself saying, If only I hadn't, and things would have been different if... She should have had an early night. She should have changed the batteries in her alarm clock. But later she realised that fate is simply an implacable predetermination, the disastrous consequences of destiny's journey. She came to understand that there was nothing she could have done to prevent this chain of events from occurring and was reconciled by the thought. She was crossing the marble landing, looking apprehensively into the darkened stairwell that lay ahead, when she heard the loud tinny ping of the elevator arriving. She looked up above the brushed steel doors to see its triangular red light flick on. The doors slid open, and because there was already someone inside the car, her apprehension evaporated and she ran to catch it. The doors closed, and she checked the panel to make sure that the stranger was also going to the ground floor. He was, so she stepped back and held her briefcase with both fists closed over the handle and stared at the floor as people do out of modesty and awkwardness and a desire not to attract attention to themselves. The elevator passed the fifth floor. It had mirrored walls of mottled gold, a fake wood frame and ceiling which was actually painted steel and a scuffed metal floor. According to the sign on the wall, it could hold eight passengers 
and was equipped with an intercom in the event of emergency. She glanced into the mirror and caught sight of the other passenger. He was tall and slender, with a long, high, cheekboned face, a strong nose, and eyes so deep-set that from the side they just looked like holes in his head. His sleek black hair was cropped to a line above his ears. He wore a thick red check shirt, a cheap generic brand of jeans, and dirty trainers. His briefcase was metal and hard-edged. She looked back at her shoes, thinking she needed to save up some money and buy a new pair because these had scuffed toe caps when the lift came to an abrupt halt between floors five and four. Mia's knees absorbed the brief buckle in gravity, and she righted herself. The lights flickered once, but remained on. "'What the hell?' said the man. He'd been leaning against the panel, which was set into the side wall of the elevator, and now he jumped back as if he had been bitten. "'Did you press something?' Mia asked. "'No, I wasn't touching it.' said the man. Anyway, the buttons are recessed. It's probably a break in the power. He pressed the ground floor button again and raised his head, listening. But nothing happened. That's not good. What? asked Mia. He held up a finger. I can't hear any machinery. If it's an electric fault... It might have stripped the circuit. What does that mean? Well, the system would have to be reset. But the lights are still working. They're on a different circuit. He studied the wall panel. You seem to know a lot about it, Mia said, watching him. I'm an electrician. I'm installing trunking in the new building. I came here for a meeting to see if we can take any of the old telephone equipment with us. He seemed to notice her for the first time. Hello, I'm Galia Sokolov. He had to bend a little to shake her hand. I'm Mia, she said. I'm in records, but I'm moving out next week. I hope the new building has better lifts than this. Don't worry, they're super modern. I'm surprised this thing is still in service. I just hope the intercom's been checked lately. He pressed the speaker button and kept his ear close to the grill. There was a distant crackle, like a faraway radio station being tuned, but the sound ended abruptly. See, there's a hard line to a response station, but if the line isn't tested regularly, it can kick off. He listened again. No, that's completely dead. Sounds like someone hasn't been doing their monthly check. Wait, there's a helpline to call. Mia pointed to the number printed at the base of the panel. She fished in her briefcase for her mobile, then studied the screen. It says, no access to network. Can you try yours? I haven't got mine, Galia admitted. It's still on my desk. I was going downstairs for a smoke. Wait, maybe it needs a hard reboot. Try turning it off, taking the battery out and putting it back in. 
Mia unclipped the mobile's back, shook out the battery, slipped it back in and turned it on. A minute later, the same message came up again. Wait, it might just be a dead spot. Let me try. I can manage, said Mia. I've got longer arms. He took the mobile and held it up to the corners of the elevator, then down at the base of the door. Nothing. Not even a weak signal. I've been meaning to get it looked at. I don't think it's your phone. There's a lot of sensitive data on the fourth and fifth floors. The rooms are probably shielded. If we were just one floor further down... Well, we're not, said Mia testily. What do we do now? I don't know, Galia admitted. He tried the intercom button again, but the line was definitely dead. Mia reached around him and stabbed harder at it. She had no fear of enclosed spaces, but it was getting late, and she was supposed to be cooking her mother a beef stew tonight. The shops would soon be closed. Besides, the building was emptying out and would be shut up for the weekend. She studied the button panel carefully. Is something supposed to be in there? Look. She pointed to a small rectangular hole in the panel that looked as if it should house a fuse or a button. Galia shrugged. It's made by a Russian company. You never know which buttons are supposed to be there and which ones aren't. They take out broken ones, then find the replacements don't fit. Should we bang on the doors? The caretaker might hear us. I doubt it, but we can try. Galia balled his fists and pounded the doors hard. They shouted, directing their voices to the slender join in the far corner of the door. Galia produced a strong, loud bellow. But it made no difference. They took turns to shout for about an hour. Galia pulled a screwdriver from his back pocket and inserted it between the door and the wall. He tried to leave her open the door, but gave up after a few minutes. I think it has a metal catch that prevents the door from being forced, he said finally. It's, it's pretty solid. He sounded almost impressed. Mia sank back against the wall, frustrated and angry. I suppose we'll just have to wait until someone comes, she said finally. Someone will come, he told her. We can't be the last ones out of the building. What if we are? Then we'll be stuck here overnight. There are always people in the place on Saturday mornings. I sometimes get called in for the whole day. Hopefully we won't have to wait that long. Someone will come. He gave her an optimistic smile. That was the first day. The second day. The contents of her briefcase were laid out neatly across the floor. They included an almost empty bottle of water. It was unsafe to drink from the taps at the archive. An apple, a nutrition bar, 
various pots and tubes of makeup. Her useless mobile phone, its battery now almost dead. A comb, a nail file, and some documents she'd been planning to work on over the weekend. She separated the items with precision. My mother has Alzheimer's, she said. My brother thinks it's quite a useful disease. Sometimes he says he's been to visit her, and he hasn't. But she can't remember. She relies on me. But I don't suppose she rang anyone when I didn't turn up, she said. Later today, my brother's supposed to look in on her. She'll tell him I didn't come, and he'll call me. You think he'll figure out what's happening? I don't know. He's not very smart. Probably not. He'll just think I've gone to visit friends, and my mother forgot to tell him. I was due to look in on a colleague today, but Masher only has my mobile number. She studied the contents of her briefcase. Okay, now it's your turn. Are you okay? Valia asked, concerned. No, of course not. There's no point in panicking, is there? What have you got? Galia sighed and began to sort through his case. He found a handful of boiled sweets underneath his papers. Aha! A treasure trove. You've been holding out on me. I didn't know they were there. He unwrapped one and passed it over. Mia examined it and made a face. Yuck! Butterscotch! Oh well, beggars can't be choosers. It was cold in the lift, but at least Mia had a thick fleece jacket to sleep beneath. Galia had curled himself up on the floor and dozed. It was 4.20 a.m. At half past seven, Mia awoke and saw the contents of Galia's case laid out at her feet like votive offerings. A screwdriver, a penknife, a pencil some rubber bands, a tube of glue, a lottery ticket, a scarf, some unopened letters that looked like bills, an entry form for a marathon run. It wasn't a very inspiring collection of items. I'm sorry, he said, sweeping them back into his case. If I'd have known we were going to get stuck here, I'd have bought better equipment with him. Look, you're an engineer. Electrician. You must know what to do in a situation like this. The lift is jammed because the brake shoes have come on, so there's no danger of us falling. They're programmed to spring out and lock into place if there's a power failure. But I think what happened here was a current surge that tripped the circuit breakers. The system is old. They probably have to be reset manually. And if there's no one around to do it, it doesn't get fixed. There's, there's another possibility. Maybe somebody forced the door on one of the other floors. That would also cause the lift to stop. We can't call out on the intercom because the fixed line is dead. But there should still be an alarm, a light and a buzzer working somewhere, even though we can't hear it. We just have to stay calm and wait what if nobody comes? They're closing down the building. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Not yet. Not for good. There are people coming in and out all of the time, Galia assured her. Those men with the boxes, they're bound to need to use the lift. They can't carry everything, all dynamos, flights of stairs. But they're just temporary workers. They don't know who's in the building and who isn't. There's no reason why they should care. If the lift's not working, they'll find another way down. Maybe there's a goods lift. You worry a lot. That's what my mother says. What happened to your father? He died of lung cancer. His own fault. Chain smoker. Do you have a boyfriend? No. Why not? I don't know. I never go anywhere where I'm likely to meet one. I'm always working. But you're very, very pretty. She gave him a cool look. And raised a hand. Look, don't. Just don't, okay? This is not the time or the place. I'm sorry. It was just an impartial observation. Galia, I need to pee. Okay. He looked around. Finish the water in your bottle and use that. Shouldn't we save the water? We'll be out soon. It can't be much longer. Here, look. Now, we make a funnel from the plastic cover on my paperwork. He took out his penknife and expertly carved a small cone, neatly locking the edges together. She looked at it. That's amazing. What are you, a survivalist? Putin is a survivalist. I'm not a fan of the president. Quite right. Keep your shirt on. Face the door. She turned away from him and squatted, filling the bottle. Okay, he said when she finished. Now give it to me. She looked suspicious. Why? I'm getting rid of it. It'll start to smell. He pushed his weight against the door and carefully emptied the bottle down into the gap between the door and the floor. Let's hope neither of us need to do anything bigger. I doubt it. I've been on a diet all week. The apple and the nutrition bar are on my lunch from yesterday. Why are you on a diet? 
Have you seen what's happening to Russian girls? I didn't eat either. I forgot the time. I usually have sandwiches in my case. Try and get some sleep. There won't be anyone here before nine at the earliest, not on Saturday. Okay. She settled herself back in the corner of the elevator. This floor's hard. That was the start of the second day. The third day. What's the problem? It hurts. Let me take a break for a second. Galia dropped back down on his soles and rubbed his thighs. Okay, let's try again. He reached up onto tiptoe and fitted his screwdriver into the screw head, carefully scraping at the layers of paint that covered it. Russian workmanship, he said through gritted teeth. They'd rather keep painting over it than bother to sand it once. The screwdriver skidded across the ceiling, hitting the neon light panel. Support my legs, will you? Mia had no desire to touch him. Her skin was coated in a layer of sweat. Her eyes were gritty. They had finished the apple and had agreed to eat the nutrition bar later. Neither of them expected anyone to show up on a Sunday, so they would have to hold out at least another twenty hours until the remaining members of the archive's workforce came into work on Monday. Got me? Yes, she gripped harder. His legs felt surprisingly muscular. She'd figured he was a weakling. It had taken this long for him to think of climbing up out through the roof. In fairness, neither of them had been thinking rationally, because until now they'd expected to be released any minute. The ceiling panel was small and unpromising, not at all as it might appear in a film. At his fifth attempt... One of the screws holding the panel began to turn and eventually came out. The second one gave more easily, the third easier still. But the thread on the fourth had torn, and there was no way of removing it. I don't believe it, she said, staring at the ceiling panel. Can't you just force it? How? Galia asked. I can't get any leverage up there. Then let me try. You can hold me up, can't you? They switched roles. Once he had balanced himself, Galia raised her above his head, balancing her on his thigh. He let her hammer at the panel with the butt of the screwdriver. One half of it slowly lifted. But the metal was folding diagonally, raising only a triangle that was not large enough for a cat to climb through. It's no use, she said. I can't move it back any further. What can you see? Nothing. Just black and a bit of the wall. Wait. Lift me up a bit higher. She pushed her arm through the hole and felt something wet. A small amount of water was dripping into the shaft. There must be a leak somewhere above us, 
she cupped her hand and carefully brought it back through the hole. The water was iridescent with petrol contamination and looked grey in her hand. She touched her tongue to it. I don't think you should drink that, said Galia. We haven't got anything else. It's a bit brackish. Tastes like water, though. Take the lid off my facial cleanser and pass it up. He handed her the plastic lid, and she pushed her arm through the space once more, waiting for the cup to fill. I heard about a cleaning woman in Samara who got stuck in a lift and survived for thirty days by drinking the water in her mop pail. He was exhausted from holding her so high and nearly dropped her. It was hard work and took several trips just to fill the little lid of her makeup case. I hope I don't get sick drinking this, he said, eyeing her doubtfully as he sipped from the container. So, how come you don't have a boyfriend? She rolled her eyes and dropped down into the corner, retreating behind her furry coat. I don't want to go into this, okay? Do you think we'll be on television when we get out? I don't know. I don't care. I just want to go home and see my mother. It's weird that no one's coming to look for us. They're not worried. You usually go missing? No, it's just... We, we don't check in with each other much. I take turns caring for my mother. That's part of the deal. What deal? My brother and I don't really get along, so we don't overlap our visits. She pulled the jacket tighter around her. Anyway... You're always asking me questions. What about you? You live here. I just moved here from St. Petersburg. I'm from Moscow. And before that, a small town you won't have heard of. Do you have family here? You mean, am I married? He shook his head, as if enjoying a private joke. No, I don't have family. Here or in Moscow... My father died. Mother's family emigrated. There's nobody left. There's nothing to say. Mia knew how private Muscovites could be and did not press him for details. There was no point in trying. Getting personal information out of them was like tearing out fingernails. You're pretty good, he said. What do you mean? No tears, no screaming fits, no tantrums. I mean, this is a pretty nasty situation, and you've handled it very calmly. That's impressive. It doesn't mean I'm not having a very bad time. My back aches. I really need to walk around soon or I'll seize up. And I'm fighting the urge to scream. Could you try the door again with your penknife? I told you it won't work. The thing's a cheap knockoff. I'll only snap the blade. Just try it again for me. 
Scalia opened out the longest blade of the imitation Swiss army knife and inserted it into the narrow gap at the edge of the door. Gently leaning his weight against it, he pushed. After a minute, there was a crack and he swore, snatching away his blooded hand. The blade clattered to the floor. Mia jumped to his side. What happened? The damn thing broke. I told you it would. He sucked at the heel of his hand. Show me. It's okay. He pulled away, dripping blood. She could tell by now that he hated to be touched. It was odd, considering how small the space was, that they'd shared so little intimacy, not a hug of comfort, little more than the accidental brush of a hand. Last night, while she had been forced to defecate into a plastic makeup bag, they had shifted to the far corners of their cell in denial of their own humanity. It's just a surface cut. He shook his hand out, turning aside. She noticed that he hardly slept. Whenever she dozed, her last sight was of him watching her. Why won't you let me touch you? I don't need to be comforted. I know how to handle a cut. I'm not saying you don't. It's just you won't let anyone help you. I don't like being fussed over. By anyone or just me? Go back to sleep. Well, we'll be out of here in the morning, she pointed out primly. And you won't have to worry about me after that. The fourth day. Something had gone wrong. It was 10am. There should have been people in the building by now, but they had not heard a sound. And it had become cold in the lift. The main boilers are in the basement, said Galia. It's always hot down there. I think they've been saving money by turning off the heat to the occupied floors. It's a stupid system. Why can't we hear anyone? Mia asked. Someone must have noticed by now that the lift is stuck. The fourth floor has been cleared. Maybe the fifth as well, I don't know. I never have to go there. Me neither. I don't see many people going in and out of the building, but I figure there has to be staff still working on other floors. Maybe not. Maybe they managed to clear the building on Friday, but even that shouldn't make a difference. There must still be people here, and everyone has to pass the elevator bank. I don't know, said Mia wearily. Nobody tells me anything. I'm just a junior. I can't shout any more. I have no voice left. It was true. Both of them were now speaking in hoarse whispers. She threw a desultory kick at the door, but as usually it barely registered the sound. Some things built by Russians were liable to fall to pieces overnight, and others were built to last a century. It appeared that the lift belonged in the latter group. Are you hungry? No, not really. I feel spaced. 
But then I've been on a permanent diet for the last three years. I'm used to feeling like this. I'm thirsty, though. Can I climb up again? Galia rose and waited for Mia to get to her feet. He allowed her to climb up on his bent leg, noting that she seemed to feel lighter. But perhaps that was his imagination. He was still uncomfortable about physical contact. She reached through the bent panel with her cup and waited for water to drip. But none came. It stopped, she called down. Maybe the leak was fixed. Or maybe it only leaks when the heating system is turned on. The heat might expand the pipe joints and cause them to leak. She lowered herself back down. I can't believe you bought nothing to eat in that tool case. I didn't know this was going to happen. Try the intercom again. I've tried it a hundred times, Mia. She gave him an odd look. That's the first time you've used my name. Well, I like to get to know people first. He gave a small smile. She laughed. It felt good to laugh again. She had to fight to stop it from turning into tears. The fifth day. I think it stinks in here, she said, lolling her head to one side and looking at the plastic sack of shit in the corner. I mean, I can't smell anything, but it must stink, mustn't it? Like when they open astronauts' capsules. They say the smell is terrible. I don't know. My hair needs washing. After two weeks, your hair starts cleaning itself. Galia was idly rearranging the papers in his case. According to his watch, it was 4.45pm, but there was no sound of any activity from outside. They were still taking turns throughout the day to hammer on the door and yell for help, but their energy was fading. Mia looked unwell. Her skin was greasy and pale and she seemed to be having trouble focusing her attention on anything for long. She stared from half-shut eyes, in a muffled, limbo land between sleep and wakefulness. Do you think your mother is okay? Do you think your brother went to see her? I hope so. He's kind of unreliable. So that's why he hasn't tried to find you? I, I don't know. Probably. He disappears every now and again with some girl he's met in the bar. But why hasn't anyone else come for you? I don't fucking know, Galia, okay? She shouted, her patience suddenly broken. We live in a world where people don't give a shit. Because my own mother doesn't even recognise me. If I'm honest, if I'm really honest, there's no one out there who cares if I live or die. No one. I'm sorry, he said, reaching out towards her. Don't touch me. Don't fucking touch me. All right, he said. All right. They sat in the respective corners of their cell and listened to the silence in the shaft. 
Then they heard it. The unmistakable sound of a woman in heels walking across marble, and a man's footsteps heavier, wider, very close. They were talking. Their conversation faded and grew in a fluctuating wavelength. Galia pressed his ear to the door. Mia tried to get to her feet, but had to be assisted. Help! We're in here! We're inside! Call someone! Please help us! They kicked against the door with their heels, then listened. The voices and the footsteps had stopped. Were they looking at the elevator, trying to hear who was inside? They called and hammered and listened. But there was nothing more from beyond the steel walls. The silence was palpable and overpowering. What's wrong with people, she said, sliding slowly down the mirrored wall. What the hell is wrong with these people? The Sixth Day My period should have started. That'll be nice, won't it? I have no tampons. Pity. There would have been something else we could have added to the pile in the corner. She nodded at the plastic bag of excrement. Your period can stop in times of stress, he said. I read that somewhere. You know a lot about women, don't you? She asked belligerently. When was the last time you went with a girl? Have you even had a girlfriend? He looked down at the floor between his knees. It's none of your business. Really? We've spent a lot of time together, and you ask plenty of questions about me, but you never talk about yourself, beyond the fact that you resented your mother remarrying and moving to France. Do you even like girls? Of course I do. His voice was barely a whisper. I love them. Well, I would have thought this was a perfect opportunity for you to get to know one really well. But all you do is stare at me. I've seen you watching me when I'm trying to sleep. I don't have anything to say. Men don't talk as much as women. So now you understand all women. I didn't know you were such an expert. I know what you're trying to do, Mia. You're trying to goad me, but it won't work. I'm not angry. Really? Why not? You should be. If you'd taken the stairs, if the power hadn't gone off, if the lift hadn't broken down, if the building wasn't being emptied, you'd be home right now having a wank in front of your computer. Why are you behaving like this, Mia? It won't solve anything. Exactly. Nothing I say or do is going to make any difference. If someone was going to come, they'd have been here by now. Something is wrong out there. I don't know what, but it's not normal. What's going on outside is not just another working day. It's something bad, or weird, or... I don't know. It's just not... not right. We can hear them. They must be able to hear us, but they do nothing. Maybe the world's come to an end. 
Maybe Martians took over. Maybe we're already dead. Don't talk like that," said Galia angrily. "You mustn't say that. Why not? Face it. We might as well be. Nobody's going to rescue us. We're going to die in here—a pair of pathetic, pointless deaths. It's over. You're just being crazy because you're upset. It's dehydration. Our bodies are made up of two-thirds water. We need it for circulation and breathing, and to build energy. If you're losing more water than you're taking in, you dehydrate. But it's cold in here. I'm not sweating. No, but the air's dry. You only have to lose just two and a half percent of your body weight to lose a quarter of your power. I mean, for a hundred and seventy-five pound man, that's only around two quarts of water. Then your blood gets thicker, and loses volume. Your heart has to work harder, and your blood slows. What happens after that? Then you die. How long do you think we've got? I don't know. We last had water the day before yesterday. You could survive without food for four to six weeks, but water—we've got maybe four. Five days tops. The seventh day. A new fatalism had settled in the elevator. They tried the leak again, but found no more water. And besides, Galia was no longer able to lift Mia close to the ceiling. The floor was littered in debris from their cases. Everything had been torn up, and examined for the possibility of providing nutrition. The door was covered in scratches, but they had not been able to move it even a quarter of an inch. Occasionally, they heard a noise outside, that might have been a person, or a rat. It was hard to tell the sounds apart from each other. Mia. Could no longer think clearly. Her thoughts were a jumble of faded memories, and half-formed notions. In her lucid moments, she thought of her mother, alone in her apartment without food, not remembering how to use her telephone, and of her brother out somewhere, partying with some crazy girl, oblivious of his responsibilities. Then she would drift into the world of her imagination, remembering her childhood at the red-walled apartment in Kurovsk, her grandmother's patient smile, the puppy that died of distemper at Christmas. When she awoke, Galia was cradling her head on his thigh. And stroking her wet hair from her eyes. What are you doing? She asked. You have a fever. I found two headache pills in my jacket. Do you think you can swallow them without water? I don't know. He pressed the pain relief tablets from their foil blister pack, and folded them into her hand. 
Think of a knife cutting a fresh lemon in half and imagine the juice from it running into your mouth. She looked up at him and smiled. It's working. My mouth is wet. She ate the pills but could not swallow them and crunched them instead. Tell me about your family, he said gently. Tell me about growing up. Tell me who you hope to fall in love with. She spoke in a faint whisper, but her thoughts did not hold for long, and soon she was asleep once more. The Eighth Day It was late afternoon when they heard the laughter, a woman screeching in what sounded like a helpless fit of hysterics. She had to be drunk. The noise was a burst of mundane life in their strange cocoon. Galia made a show of shouting, but knew by now there would be no response. In the last few days they had heard several others walking and talking, but there had been no reaction to their hammering. Mia briefly opened her eyes at the sound, but vaporised into fitful sleep once more. Her skin had turned a strange shade of yellow-grey, as if she was becoming bruised from within, and she looked even more translucent than usual, fading into her surroundings, sinking within the sweat-drenched folds of her reeking clothes. Galia stared at his thinning reflection in the opposite wall, noting how they looked like a couple long familiar with each other. It was a peaceful image to hold in his mind as he allowed himself to fall asleep. The Ninth Day The lassitude of their becalmed world deepened like a mantle of snow or dust, thick and museum silent, so viscous that it was virtually unbreathable. Galia reached out and pressed his fingertips against the mirrored wall, wondering if he might be able to pass through it now, for it felt as if some fundamental metaphysical change was occurring, in the same way that the atoms of corpses eventually mingled with the wood of their coffins. He found a few crumbs of something, possibly brick dust, hopefully the remains of a wholemeal biscuit, in the insides of his jacket, and gently forced them between Mia's lips, trying to make her eat them, but they remained on the tip of her dry tongue. At some time in the course of that endless neon-lit evening, Mia's fever broke, and she appeared a little healthier. The sweat dried on her brow, and she was able to sit up. She was too dry to speak, and Galia knew she needed water or she would die in the next few hours. Slowly and painfully, he rose and wedged himself in a corner of the lift, reaching up inch by inch 
until he could reach his fingertips through the panel. He retracted them in wonder. They were cold and wet. Mia, the water's back. I think I can get us some. But I'll need to stand on you to reach it. I can't. Everything hurts. Please, Galia, no. Ignoring her, he pushed a foot onto her back, jumped up and reached the plastic cup through the panel until she cried and sharply rolled away from him, causing him to fall with the cup, spilling the precious droplets. You idiot, he rasped. I can get you some water. You can last out longer. What's the point? she croaked back. No one is coming. Why should I bother to try lasting for a few more hours? Because it's not over yet, he answered. It doesn't end like this. The Tenth Day They lay together like old lovers. Galia pulled himself up and stared back at the smeared mirror. Mia was curled over him, with her arm around his waist. They looked posed, as if they were having a portrait painted. He listened to her soft, shallow breath, and then at the distant thumping on a floor somewhere above them. With infinite patience and care, he arranged her hair back over her ears and forehead and adjusted the coat that was her bed so that she looked like any normal girl asleep in her partner's arms. Even though her eyes were sunken and her lips were the colour of paper, she was beautiful. After a few minutes her eyes opened slowly and she saw him she managed a faint smile. Hello, you. Hello. You're always there. Yes, always here. I was dreaming of fruit. Fruit and chocolate. The chocolate was so real I could smell it. And there was a great lake of fresh water. That sounds like a nice dream. Maybe we always dream about things as they should be, you know, in an ideal world. I don't know. I've had too many nightmares in my life. Your life wasn't good. Is that why you don't talk about it? My life has been as bad as some very bad dreams. But that's what nightmares are for. They prepare you for the world. I'm sorry. Don't be. I'm sorry you won't get a chance to put it right. To enjoy the good part. You think every life has a good part? It must do. Otherwise, why are we here? She snuggled into his bony waist, enjoying this oasis lucidity. There must be a part which makes you feel this is why you're alive. I hope you're right. 
I would like to feel for a moment that everything was perfect. We're all selfish. I know that. We want... <coughs> she stopped to cough. He tried to calm her, but she wanted to talk. Gra gratification. Pleasure. That's human nature. It doesn't make us bad. But we must give as much pleasure as we want to receive in return. Don't you think that? Yes, I suppose I do. Good. She was happy that the matter seemed settled. There was no point now in talking of escape, or rescue, or survival. They had reached a calm plateau, where a purity of thought passed easily between them. I only wish... You should try to rest, he said, noting that her last coughing fit had produced specks of blood from her lungs. I feel okay. My throat hurts less when I talk. That doesn't make sense, does it? Nothing makes sense in this world anymore, Mia. Maybe it never did. I only wish I could have experienced more. On travelling... I've never been to a really good beach. A tropical beach, you know? Like the ones in the brochures. I've never been to the kind of parties you see in films. Never had champagne. Never been to China or India or the West. Never got out of a car at a nightclub and walked to the front of the queue. All the photographers trying to take my picture... Not that I'd want to do that. It's just the idea that's nice. What were you going to do when you left this job? Get married? Have children? No. I was thinking of leaving to teach in an African village. I knew a girl at school who did that. A job you'd look forward to every day, with children and sunlight. Lots of sunlight. That's nice. What about you? I don't know. It's not been easy for me to overcome unhappiness. All I can ever do is to make it go away for a few months at a time. He looked at his watch. It's one minute past midnight. Another day has just started. The eleventh day. You've been keeping track. Yes, he admitted. Can I ask you again? Go on, then. She held his gaze in the mirror and nodded permission. Why didn't you find a boyfriend? Because I never met anyone who deserved me. Do you think you could ever have fallen in love with me? She thought for a while, and it seemed that she drifted back into sleep. But her eyes slowly opened once more. I think I'm in love with you now, she said. And there it was.
the simplicity of the admission, without irony, kindness or dishonesty, stripped of any other meaning, a calm and perfect statement of love that appeared like a boat on a flat still sea. The boat held hope. And I am in love with you. His eyes held hers. I have always loved you. There was nothing else either of them needed to say any more. He watched her unchanging face as she fell asleep, with his image imprinted upon her retinas, and remained quite still as her breathing became shallower until it was imperceptible, and the minutes turned to hours, and her coma deepened, and the day ticked silently away, slowing to ever tinier proportions of the clock. And he knew she'd finally passed across the threshold of death. He checked his watch. 7.45pm. The building was empty once again. He set her body gently on the floor and tucked the collar of her coat around her neck, wanting her to be comfortable and beautiful now more than ever. He had difficulty rising to his feet. He dug into his tool case and found the red plastic rectangle and carefully reinserted it into the hole in the lift's control panel. Then he pressed the ground floor button. He heard the machinery and cables moving above him. The elevator started up and descended to the ground floor. He cleared the detrius from the lift and picked up the chocolate bar wrappers that had fallen from his pocket. When the door opened, he removed the taped signs that said Elevator maintenance in operation for two weeks and put them in his case. He was tired and thirsty, but it had been a moving and truly wonderful experience. He had experienced the most perfect form of love. Flooded with an overwhelming sense of satisfaction, he made his way towards the exit and the outside world. Thank you for letting us have that, Christopher. In addition to novels, Mr. Fowler writes short stories, scripts, press articles, reviews. He lives in King's Cross, London, and says he chooses that city as the backdrop for many of his stories because any one of the events in its 2,000-year history can provide inspiration. In 1998, he received the British Fantasy Society's Best Short Story of the Year Award for Wage Slaves. In 2004, 
The Water Room was nominated for the CWA People's Choice Award. Full Dark House won the BSF August Derleth Novel of the Year Award in 2004. The novella Breathe, published by Telos Publishing Limited, won the British Fantasy Society Award for Best Novella in 2005. His novel Bryant and May and the Invisible Code will be out in August of this year. I love stories like The Eleventh Day. They they do so much more than just chill you and take you through a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. All the while they explore things about being human in a subtle, undercover, sneaky, nasty way. The story was first published in issue 14 of Black Static, the UK's leading magazine of dark fantasy and horror. Kim Lakin-Smith did a fantastic job narrating Kim Newman's Is Anyone There? back in evening five of Tales to Terrify, I think it was. And she's now done a fantastic job with The Eleventh Day. To remind you, Kim is the author of Tourniquet, Tales from the Renegade City, and the young adult novella Queen Rat. Her fantasy and science fiction short stories have appeared in Black Static, Interzone, Celebration, Myth Understanding, Further Conflicts, Pandemonium, Stories of the Apocalypse, and others with Johnny and Emmy Lou Get Married shortlisted for the British Science Fiction Association's Short Story Award in 2009. Kim has a background in performance and is a regular guest speaker at writing workshops and conventions. And as I said before, ten, ten, ten long episodes ago, we'd love to have you back. And we do. We want you back again and again and again. Well, that is it, children of the night. Wrap up, head home, talk amongst yourselves en route. And have a good sniff of the air. Smell it? It's spring, for honest and for real. I don't like that season. Most people do, so I expect you're among those. So enjoy, as you walk in the dark, nod politely to those you pass on the way, and be careful of the stairs going up. You never know who lurks whispering in the darkness. Well, probably no one. But when you turn off the light and you pull up the covers, listen. Listen to the evening in your room. And, as always, have pleasant dreams. Hmm? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.